Welcome to the Kind Faith Bible Podcast. Conversations about how we read the Bible for newcomers and nerds alike. We understand what it's like to not feel like things are okay to talk about at church. To be in poor standing or to feel like you are. And like you have the doubt or the idea or the thought that if you voiced it, no one would accept you and someone from the platform would call you out and ask the ushers to take you out of the room. So we are here for everybody who feels like they find themselves on the outside of what's appropriate and proper. And we're going to talk about those things because the Bible, in our view, has a lot to say and a lot of truth to speak to those ideas. So we're excited to be kicking it off again. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. It's so good. I should introduce myself. I'm Jeff. And I'm Tyler. So we're, we're starting off with this idea. And, and before I give the idea, I'm just going to, Tyler, you had a story to share about an experience when you were at UCSD. Yeah. And I've got an experience to share about Ted Lasso. So, um, which, you know, of course is all important and Ted Lasso's on now. So yay. Yeah. So tell us about your UCSD story. Mine is much less significant. So I was a student in the religion department at UCSD and secular campus down in San Diego. Uh, we joked it was more of an anti-religion major. I, I feel like almost all the professors that I took, it felt like most of the time they were disproving a lot of what I had grown up to believe. Uh, and I, I had one professor in particular who was culturally Jewish, but admitted that he was an atheist, didn't believe any of the, the, the Bible to be true. Um, but he was one of the leading scholars for the, the literary nature of the Old Testament. That was Friedman, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. Friedman. Okay. Yeah. Oh he wrote gosh. a book called Who Wrote the Bible? That yeah. kind of put him on the chart. So, uh, so anyway, I was in this class with him. And uh, there was one, sev- several times this happened, but one moment in particular stands out. He was walking us through the literary nature of the book of Genesis. And he was showing how, actually, if you trace the, the repeated theme of, of a goat, right? So, so the, the, these sons keep um, betraying their father and generation, generationally, they keep betraying each other, you know, so like, um, there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob um, backstabs Esau to get the the, the birthright. The birthright. But then Jacob's sons, uh, it comes back around on him, and he thinks that his most beloved son Joseph dies, and there's this dead animal skin in the midst of this whole story. And so there's this theme of this repeated literary uh, motif that keeps showing up that says, Whenever you see it, you're supposed to say, oh, there's going to be another cycle of retribution about to happen. And so he starts to trace this and he says, so if you're following the theme of retribution, um, right at the end, you have Joseph coming out on top over his brothers. He's now become, you know, prince of Egypt and, and he's over the land and his brothers are at his mercy. And this is the moment in the story where you're going to say, okay, so... Uh, now it's Joseph's turn. If I'm following the literary motifs, Joseph's about to have retribution on his brothers. And the story ends with this incredible moment of grace where Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, and I forgive you. And so that basically, here's Richard Friedman, an atheist, teaching us that the, the main like storyline of Genesis ends with forgiveness and grace an interruption of the cycle of retribution yeah yeah and i was like this is so amazing like i've never seen this like oh like this is all these stories 
were planned out and God's been weaving through all these stories. And so I, I remember I walked out of that class. I was so excited. I turned to my buddy who was in Bible study with me and in the class as well. And I'm like, wasn't that amazing? Like, I felt like we just got preached to. And, and he goes, whoa, <clears throat> Tyler, you got to take a step back. He, he's an atheist. You can't take anything that he says um, and, and like believe it. And it was, it was such a shocking moment because like, but we, what we just heard was true. That was absolutely true and a really great way to read the book of Genesis. Richard Friedman totally nailed that. But here's my friend in Bible study thinking, you know what? Because this guy is not a Bible-believing Christian, I can't believe anything he says. Mm. So I'm, just, I'm like sitting there thinking, well, why are you even in this class then? Like what was even the point? And he felt like his job was to refute every single word of the class and that's what that's what he was trying to do every single day day in and day out and i'm thinking but but there was there was something really good here mm. can't we take that uh, he, he decided I, to isolate himself in the role yeah. of defender of the faith yeah and that was one of the first this was when i was i think i was a freshman at the time in college so this is uh, one of the first moments where i really had that distinct impression like oh am i allowed to find truth and come closer to Jesus by a teaching from someone who doesn't profess any of my beliefs? Am I yeah. allowed to take that and say, actually, the way he had just walked me through this part of the Bible is absolutely true. And that, you know, so that, that was the beginning of this. And we were talking about this kind of idea. Are we allowed to find truth, even biblical truth, in sources outside of kind of prescribed Christianity. Yeah. And what do you do when you find it there? I, um, this is my Ted Lasso story. I got rebuked for watching Ted Lasso for is a, a strong Christian, um, said that it was inappropriate for me to recommend Ted Lasso because, um, there was such, there were so many foul things in it. It disqualified any good that could be found in it. And yeah, that's a, that's a different nuance because yeah, there's foul language, there's inappropriate um, sexual relationships, not on display. It's a family-oriented show. But it, it, it was a sense that this whole thing must be thrown out mm. because a part of it is impure. And it's a different nuance on what you're talking about. Um, but it, it, it all revolves around this same theme. What do we do when we, when we encounter profound truth in a package that doesn't match our expectations. And I know that when I was in college, that threatened me. If there was a truth that was profound that I heard from um, a professor who was an atheist or from a friend who was a Buddhist, I, I had to reject not only the truth, but ultimately work my way to rejecting the whole person because it was too much of a threat. How could theirs be true and mine be true? And it felt like yeah. a embracing of universalism. Right. You know, on that same idea, especially college campuses, this is where this happens a lot. And, and I, in my past, worked on college campuses for 10 years. I'm doing college ministry again. And I love Wait, students. can we pause there? <laughs> Tyler's doing college ministry again. You can support him at intervarsity.com. Oh, gosh. <laughs> or intervarsity.org or was, whatever. That was the wrong domain. You can email me, though. Yeah, yeah. Reach okay. out to Tyler. He needs to be supported for university. Thanks. I'm just going to shamelessly plug it. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, uh, so anyway, what were we talking about? So college ministry, I love student ministry. What I, what I have experienced time and time again is students that grew up in a, a church community go to college and their faith up until that point was kind of very locked tight in this box. My truth is what I learn at church or from my family or from my pastor. And if, if, it, if that's given in, uh, I would say, uh, a too narrow of a way, what, you ha- what happens is they'll go to college and all of a sudden they're exposed to uh, thoughts that are so foreign to anything that they've ever learned from in, in all fields, in science, philosophy, religion, sociology. And ringing true. Yeah. And, and they're like, oh, I'm learning truth. And, and maybe you start to hear, oh, this professor, like my story, this professor keeps telling me that he's an atheist, but the things he's telling me feel really true. What do I do with that? And either their faith needs to find a way to expand and say, well, then I need to be able to hold on to truth that I'm finding outside of my bubble. Or what, what sadly more often happens is their previous construction just breaks. They say, well, if I, I kept being, my whole life I was told this is truth, this little box of Christianity the fact that I'm now experiencing truth outside means I have to just throw it all out mm-hmm. and say I have to come up with something new entirely. And so uh, one of the joys of student ministry is to help people say, no, you can still hold on to all the truth that you were given uh, growing up, but maybe God's bigger than what you realized. Yeah. Uh, and maybe it's more expansive. And so how do we actually grab truth from other places um, and say, you know, if I find something that is actually true of how the universe works because God is the creator of everything, I should be able to take that within my understanding of reality. Yep. And I want to answer that how, but I want to talk about one why people tend to do that. Because I'm going to reference a non-Christian psychologist. Carl Jung had had a, an observation about the nature of people's lives. And he talked about two developmental phases. And one is the developmental phase of solidifying your core beliefs, relationships, and reasons for being. Mm-hmm. And the second half of your life is living out of your core, your core beliefs and reason for being and your core values. And a lot of people never get to the second half of life. They're constantly worried about any threats to their core values, their core belief, their identity. And, and he calls it container management. Mm-hmm. They're constantly defending the container. And that's a big part of the why people get threatened when there's something outside the container that looks like it actually belongs inside. But bringing it in means that the walls of this container have to somehow be become permeable. That's too threatening. <clears throat> they need to be defensive. They need to be strong. They need to be built on brick and solid. And, and it, it becomes too much of a threat psychologically. It's just a pure psychological reality. And a lot of our institutions are built on that. And a lot of the internet chat groups and Facebook groups you see are built around that. This is my container, this is my tribe, and this is what we believe and don't threaten it. And if you do threaten it, we're gonna go attack you. Yeah, We're gonna cancel you, we're gonna do everything we can to defend what we believe and what we hold to be true. And sadly, the church does the exact same thing. Yeah. So, bapti- baptism of infants. You know, how dare you baptize infants, <laughs> right? And, and people die over that. Their act, people actually died over that conflict hmm. around that one principle. And now we look back and think, 
what, why did that create such violence? Because it threatened the container. Yeah. It threatened the theological belief. A good kind of picture from scripture that comes to mind as you're saying, I like that image of threatening the container. Uh, to me, it's in Mark 2, the story of the Pharisees critiquing Jesus for hanging out with the tax collectors and sinners. Mm-hmm. Jesus is having a party at Levi's house with all the disreputable people in town. And the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders, look at that and it's breaking their container. This this person who's coming as a religious leader, a rabbi, possibly even a messiah, cannot, uh, in their categories, be hanging out with the riffraff of society. Mm-hmm. And so for them, it, it, there's just no um, category for this. But Jesus, who's fully confident in himself, if, if your hope and focus is on Jesus, you can go with him into places you never thought you'd go. And so his disciples are with him, hanging out at this party that no upstanding Pharisee would ever go to. But that, that picture of Jesus saying, well, of course I'm going to break through all the barriers. Th- these are the people who need me. I'm going to go there. Uh, and the Pharisees are out on the outside saying, well, how dare you? Mm-hmm. If, you if you were uh, a good, upstanding religious person, there's no way you would be going there. <laughs> exactly. And previews of coming attractions. This becomes the core movement for unity in most churches. Mm. It's a misunity. But it is all around affirming my container. We all have to affirm the same container. We all have to affirm the same belief structure. Everybody, people who don't use the same vocabulary have the same theological structures as us. Those people are outside the container. And so you, you're, they're working really hard to make sure everybody fits in the yeah. tribe. So, so the question is, now that we've got that, what are some models for how we hold on to our belief firmly that Jesus is the one true, only God incarnate, died for all sins, that scripture is the authority of Christ. How do we hold on to that and listen to David Noel Friedman yeah. and, and glean good things from him and watch Ted Lasso and benefit from the wisdom, the deep, deep abiding wisdom of Ted Lasso? <laughs> Oh, I'm so sorry. Jeff got me hooked on Ted Lasso last year, and it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I think I've had more success actually evangelizing to Ted Lasso than than Jesus over the course of my life. Yeah, that's tragic. I think that question, like, how do we do that? Uh, There, there are going to be some maybe some guardrails because there you can we can all imagine there are ways that this can go completely off the rails. Mm -hmm. We're not trying to devolve into some sort of universalism that says, well. What, wherever and whatever I hear must be true and I just have to accept it all. That, yep, yep. that doesn't work. How do we actually find a way to say, no, we're still um, biblically grounded. Our eyes are on Jesus. We, we are founded on the truth of the gospel. And yet our God is the creator of all. He, he is the master of the universe. And so it, it also should make sense that any place in this world where we find actual truth, we should be able to hold that and say that's true. Mm-hmm. And as a Christian, I should be able to to have that. One, can can I just throw a couple like what what I find the most fascinating examples? Because this is not just us spitballing. Scripture does this too. Yes. Uh, one of my more like uh, you know tongue in cheek answers I like to give when people say, "Well, can you really like just quote from any source as like truth?" I say, "Well, if you don't like that, then don't read the Bible because the Bible does that all the time." A uh, really clear example 
is this famous sermon that, that Paul gives in Acts 17. Mm-hmm. He's, at the, he's at the Areopagus, standing in front of the, um, the Athenians, right, the Greeks. And he's been walking through their town, and first he, he sees that they have all of these shrines to different gods, false gods. Paul knows that they're false gods, uh, but he stands up and he says, hey, as I was walking through your village, I saw you had one idol to an unknown god. Well, let me tell you about that unknown god. And so he starts by quoting from their idol, and it's the opener for his sermon. But then actually in the middle, this is Acts 17, two different places he quotes, he's clearly become a student of Athenian culture because he quotes from two of their philosophers. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is Acts 17, 28. He says, he's talking about God, the God of Israel, the one God of the universe. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think. And he goes on. But those two, both of those places are actually, uh, uh, one of them is from Epimenides of Crete. And another line, for indeed we are his offspring, is from one of the philosophers of pagan culture, I have it right here. It's from Aratus's poem, Phenomena. Uh, and so you, you're, you're saying, he's actually quoting like that one, for indeed we are his offspring, is actually a pagan philosopher writing about one of the pantheon of gods who he believed that this god was actually the one who created humankind. So this is a, a pagan Greek philosopher telling us about a false god who he thinks was our father. And here he's quoting it. Paul quotes it. In his argument. So what's important to note here is that he's not using it to say, yeah, and see how silly that is. Right. He's using it to support his argument. Yeah. So it, it, it's mm-hmm. a really uh, fascinating use. I, I've got an, an interesting one here in First John. Okay. Because John uses a formula, and it's not super obvious, but he uses an Epicurean formula for the proof of truth, what's what is true and what is good. So, the Epicureans were were a whole philosophical movement, and <clears throat> if they were to test something as true and good, it would be what they had heard, seen, looked upon, and touched. And so, here's what John leads off the book of First John: that which from the beginning we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands. So he's he's adopting this philosophical structure, almost a, a science to say, and, and here let me talk about this this Epicurean way of thinking around mm-hmm. Jesus is fascinating. Yeah, that is that and that that these are just two examples, but scripture does this all the time. So much Old Testament and New, they there's so much evidence that they were students of their culture, of their time, and what they're often doing is taking a story that was really common uh, in, you know, ancient Canaanite mythology or Babylonian culture. And what they're doing is um, reusing it in a way that says, actually, that you are kind of touching on the truth, but let me point you to the God of the universe that we know. And, and so it wasn't just saying, oh, well, that's true. And I'm just going to become Babylonian today. Or like, you know, um, Paul, like, like you mentioned, Paul doesn't quote from Aratus's poem and say, you know what, Aratus's was true, we should all become followers of him. He's using it in a way that says, you were, you were touching on something really good. I'm going to just kind of use that and, and give you a bridge into the truth that I know. And so there's a way to use it uh, without 
fully giving over and saying, I'm changing, changing faith today or yeah. something like that. So what's like, if, if you were going to, if you were shaping a, a two or three sentence theology around this, what would your two or three sentence theology of truth and using truth and identifying truth in the world? I know I just asked you, we did not talk about this before the podcast, but how, how would you formulate a theology there? I think it does. It starts with me. Do I, am I getting to know God through scripture, through a community of faith, through prayer? Um, am I grounded in, in his truth? Uh, and, and so maybe this is kind of like a, a next level of appreciation of who God is. As, as we're learning about God in the Bible, we realize, oh, God is the creator of everything. And if I, if I am actually connected to something real, I should be able to see glimpses of him everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it, it does, I think, uh, it, it creates some maybe fear, anxiety in a lot of folks to think that yeah, if I just told people, go out there and find God's truth anywhere, they could come back with anything. Mm-hmm. And sir, yeah, so there's got to be some way to say, well, I'm still going to be connected to a community. Uh, I think a community of faith grounded in God's word is always going to be uh, foundational. So if I'm hearing you right, I'm hearing that the theology is that this whole creation is filled with the truth of God, but not all things that are taught are true and definitely not all things are of God, even if they are true. Right. Mm. Testing that. Hold on. It has to be of God if it's true, right? I think so. Yeah. Okay. So, editing that. So, but but there are guardrails for us humans. And the guardrails are scripture, community grounded in scripture. And I think it really goes back to how you discern God's will. Community yes. grounded <clears throat> in scripture and then, and then reason. Does this fit? Rationally, I don't think circumstance lands there, but I do think discernment and prayer is a part of it, not as strong. Yeah, and it's a lot, it's part of our ongoing maturity. Uh, I think back to my class with Friedman, there were plenty of times where he said things, and I'm like, oh, I don't believe that. Like, and, and so, yeah, we're going to take things with a grain of salt. Maybe if someone comes out of the gate saying, I'm an atheist and I don't believe a word of what I'm about to tell you is true, I have a really big grain of salt in my mind say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to hear what you have to say. Uh, but I'm not going to just blindly receive everything that you have to say, uh, which we should actually do with everyone. Even a pastor who professes that, uh, everything he says or she says is the truth. Right. We should, we should, we should have the, our own wisdom and intellect and reason should always be at play to say, okay, so based on what I know of who God is, how I've connected with God in scripture and community, what am I hearing and does it actually connect with what I've already learned? Mm. And is, is, is this God revealing something more about himself or is this something completely off the rails? You know? And so, yeah. so all truth is God's truth, no matter where it lands or no matter how it's wrapped. Yeah. And we use scripture and community discernment and prayer and reason mm-hmm. to, to serve as guardrails as we approach that truth. And then I, I would add a, a, what is that, a third piece of the theology? So what is the nature of truth we got? What are the guardrails for getting to the truth? I think the third one is, 
it is the the focus of the truth. I just as we were talking, I thought of Ecclesiastes, and his very first disputation is around the vanity of wisdom. And, and he says, I I've applied my heart to seek and search out all the wisdom, all that was done. It is an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. That the knowledge that I get, it's really great to see kindness demonstrated in, in um, Ted Lasso. And it's really cool to get the insight from Friedman around God's interruption of cycles of retribution yeah. and the foreshadowing of what happens in Jesus. And it's vanity. <laughs> it's vanity outside of a singular focus on Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's the thing that supersedes it all. And it's all pointing to him. And if it becomes an end to itself, if I become a preacher of Ted Lasso or you become a, a, a Friedman mm-hmm. disciple, it it loses its its meaning because it's detached from God. Yeah. You know, something we've said in this podcast in the past that the reason we focus so much on scripture is because it is the only story that gives us what God has been doing in the world. It's the only story that tells us truly who who God is and what his character is all about. Uh, There are ways that we can find glimpses of God anywhere, and we should be able to embrace that. Um, When you find, yeah, the, the, the kindness of Ted Lasso and all this great stuff, it's like, you know what, that that's paralleling what I already knew of God's character. So I can use that as a great analogy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not going to ever throw out the Bible and say, you know what, this is an old antiquated book. I need to go find out who God is from some other source. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that maybe that's a big line to, to draw on the sand and say, I'm, I'm committed that Scripture is the only thing that God has given humanity to reveal His character accurately. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we should study it. And with all of that creativity... Uh, challenge and wonder and and curiosity and say we have to we have to jump into this book because it's the only thing that god's given us to reveal who he is but if i'm doing that day in and day out i should be able to see awesome glimpses everywhere and then if i find truth that has nothing to do with that like in my science classes i can dive fully into science and make this is awesome there's some great truth here and as christians we should embrace that um uh, and so there's a way to say I'm founded in God's character and mm-hmm. now I'm going to go out in the world and say, well, all things are mine. I should be able to take truth anywhere and, mm-hmm. and incorporate that into my life. Okay. So, so let's do, look, maybe we close out with this and totally unplanned, but okay. uh, an exercise around evolutionary thinking. Oh, cause I said science. You said science. It totally got me to <laughs> evolutionary thinking. Yeah. So here's the temptation. Mm-hmm. Here, here's the temptation that I've heard, and I've heard so many people say that that I've I've got to fight and resist at all costs any learnings that have anything to do with the teaching of evolution, because the evo- the evolutionary teaching is ultimately a godless teaching, which ultimately means that a whole lot of science that is practically being done today on that foundation, which isn't, by the way, a firm foundation, but it doesn't disqualify the science. Yeah. So, so how, how, do, I, how do I navigate that? Yeah. I, I've got um, this opportunity to take a vaccine. 
And the vaccine is actually built on evolutionary theory and the development of of our DNA and mRNA and all of that kind of stuff. Um, it wouldn't, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing with mRNA vaccines if we didn't have that underlying theory mm -hmm. of evolution. So that being the case, is it required that I not take the vaccine because it's grounded on something that is not of God? Short answer is no. I think you can take the vaccine. The, <clears throat> I, I, where my mind's going, one, I, I, I love taking people all the way back to Genesis 1 with this topic because Genesis 1 is often where we start around creation. Is it, is it creation or evolution or did God make the world in six days or six million years or whatever it was? And first, my first answer is Genesis was not written to tell you how things were created. It is not a science book. God did not give us this book to tell us how things were created. If he did, it would be way, way too confusing. Genesis 1 was written to tell you who is God and why are we here. And so when you're reading through Genesis 1, you're realizing, oh, the creator of the universe is a good God. He, he, he keeps repeating the words good on it, like every other line of the page. Uh, God created a good universe and created us to be partners with God. We're not the slaves of, of this um, all-powerful deity. Nor we're, a byproduct of some violent event. Yeah, we're not a byproduct. We're not random. We are purposeful and lovingly created to partner with God to bring his purposes to the world. So it tells us, I think, more important answers to questions like, who is God and who are we and why are we here? And what is good? Uh, and it's not there to tell us the science of how it worked. Now, I think it actually, what's remarkable, it lines up with all the different, th most theories of how the world is created starts with something chaotic and moves toward some sort of order. It starts from simple to complex. And there's actually some parallels of that, even in Genesis, but it wasn't written to tell us how. It was written to tell us why. Uh, and so on that, on that note then, on one level, most Christians, honestly, you don't have to have an opinion. Uh, if you love science and are going into a field of evolutionary science or biology, then yeah, you probably need to have an opinion. Um, on, a, on a base level, you don't have to. I can honestly remain agnostic to say, I don't really know exactly how the world was created and it doesn't impact my faith. Um, so you're allowed to not have an opinion. If you want to, you can jump in. And then the, the, the other level I would say, and I've uh, what, what comes to mind many years back, probably a decade ago, there was this famous debate with uh, Bill Nye and Ken Ham. You know, Ken Ham, the big, like, ultra, uh, ultra creationist. Six days, you have to believe in a six-day mm -hmm. creation or else mm -hmm. you're not a Christian. And Bill Nye, the science guy. Um, and what I noticed, I didn't think either of them really won the debate. Um, it wasn't very good. <laughs> but uh, what I noticed was Bill Nye had just as much faith as Ken Ham. Bill Nye was giving, giving his science... But then he would lapse into what I would call more of a scientism. He would give the facts and then say something like, so see, we don't have to believe in a God. Right there, you've just, you've just gone beyond science and into some sort of faith statement. I can reject your faith statement and still believe in your science. Does that mm. so, so that is the helpful piece. Because, yeah. because when you go back to Genesis 1 and the purpose is the why, the why we were created and who is God, then if we look at the science as it's coming out, we can accept the science as the science and reject the underpinning, this is a big word, but the underpinning 
epistemological realities of the science. So it is saying it's making statements that aren't scientific. Right. And so we reject that. We say, okay, I'm going to buy into, and and here's where the rubber meets the road. I'm going to let my kids really study, learn, and understand evolutionary theory in school. But I'm also going to help my kids understand that evolutionary theory makes a whole bunch of religious statements that aren't scientific. Yeah. And about that's hard. the nature of God. That's hard because it, it also it requires us to be more thoughtful, to pay more attention. And to even, you know, there's going to be moments where seamlessly the conversation is going to shift from a scientific statement into a faith statement. And we have to be alert enough to catch it. So, yeah, it's it's scarier. I, I totally admit, but but I think we there there is a way forward to yep. say, yeah, I can still I can fully engage and still learn from some of the leader leaders in our field of science or whatever, and I just have to be alert to say, oh, right there, you just made a faith statement. Uh, let me tell you my faith, you know, and that could open up a great conversation, a dialogue to say, well, let me tell you about the God who created me and who I know. Yep. Uh, and, so it doesn't have yeah. to be rejected out of hand. And right. and this is just such an important piece. So if you've been listening to this and you've got this far, here's, here's your summary. The theology of truth is that God is the God of all truth. And sometimes it comes packaged in ways that are unpleasant for us. But if we are engaged within the guardrails of scripture, a believing community, of active prayer life and applying our reason, we can engage truth wherever we find it and attribute that to God as it is directing us to God. If it ever becomes knowledge for knowledge's sake, it's back to Ecclesiastes or 1 Corinthians 13, clanging gong, banging cymbal. It just doesn't doesn't mean anything unless it's directed toward God. So that's the overarching thing. And then when it comes to the sticky issues, we begin to look and say, what is true here that I can embrace? And what statements in here do I need to thoughtfully reject? And this is the heart of good conversation. I'm, well, I'm sure we'll yeah. talk about this later, but um, I thought about this in this context, the whole debate going on with critical race theory and people saying, it just needs to be rejected out of hand. And no thought should be rejected out of hand. There's, there's, there's well-meaning interest in it. And so how do we engage the well-meaning interest of it, the truth that is there, and, yeah. and let go of claims that it's making that it shouldn't be making at all? Mm. Yeah, we definitely need to tackle that in a whole nother episode. We really do. We brought up a lot of good uh, <laughs> good conversations that you might want to reach out and ask more questions about. Because we, we, we just briefly touched on this whole science, evolution, creation. Um, I love that you brought up critical race theory right here at the end. But, uh, it's, a, I think, a very important conversation that I would love to dive into. It is. I just put it on the notes yeah. to make sure that we talk about it in the coming weeks. Because, I mean, honestly, I need an education. Yeah. I understand the background of it, but I don't understand where it's gone here. And in some ways, it's it's moved as a as a social movement, and I want to learn. So, yeah. but that's for another day. For this podcast, we're so glad that you tuned in. We hope that some of the thoughts that we've shared and talked about, which you might have been worried to share, uh, you feel included now in the conversation, and that it's okay to think some of these radical 
thoughts and explore them because in them, uh, God wants to move us toward him and, and keep us focused on him. So we hope you do that this week. We hope you stay connected in scripture and we hope that you tune in next week. Thanks for listening. You can find more about the Kind Faith community at thekindfaith.org.